invite you to take your Bible, if you have it, and turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 8. And the words to which I would call your attention today come to us from Matthew 8, verses 18 to 22. Let's hear now the inerrant and infallible word of the living God. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Please pray with me. Father, these are your words given to us through the incarnate Jesus Christ and preserved for all time by your Holy Spirit. Work in us now to magnify Christ, that we might be devoted to Him. We pray in His name. Amen. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever read uh, one of the most famous books by a, a guy by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer called uh, The Cost of Discipleship, there is a phrase, many phrases that stick out in, in Bonhoeffer's work. Uh, but one of them, one particular phrase is this one. He says, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Now Bonhoeffer was writing, that book was published in 1937. He was a German pastor, and he's thinking about, he's seeing uh, the rise of uh, Nazism, and he's seeing the run-up uh, to World War II and everything that that would entail and he's writing those words, calling upon Christians to devote themselves to Christ. He was, he was a dissident, uh, one who wrote against Hitler's Germany. And he makes a bold assertion. He makes a bold assertion in light of the affliction that is then surrounding them. You think Crystal knocked and, and the time of the persecution was right upon them? His bold assertion that and a profession of faith without a life of obedience showed a false faith. And so he would write in that same book, faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. Now, we would quibble with some of the things that Bonhoeffer would write, the arrangement of, he, he seems to put works before faith in his writing, but the point that he is making is relevant to our passage this morning, that a commitment to Christ cannot be mere words. Matthew is... He's, he's turning our attention. Now, remember, we've talked about the healings, and we've seen this giant exorcism take place. Uh, I'm sure Peter's mother-in-law was really happy about all these people gathering at the house there, and Jesus is casting out demons. But now Matthew turns our attention, and, and we think about discipleship. Now, let's make just a note here. 
Remember that as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John have written these uh, Gospels, it, it is their focus to provide an account of the life of Jesus, okay? But remember also that they have edited that life and they have selected from all of their memories as the Holy Spirit has guided them, they have taken scenes from the life of Christ and they have set them down for you in a certain way, not just to record His life, but also to teach you a message. And so here, Matthew turns our attention to the concept of discipleship. And those who come to Christ must come as disciples, not just as those who like to listen to His nice words. And we learn from this that true faith and obedience are inseparable. Because the Spirit who gives us faith also sanctifies us. A man who is born again is set apart to God. He puts the world behind him and wholeheartedly commits to Jesus Christ. And so, there are two lessons here this morning. One, don't be too hasty committing to Christ. Two, if you've committed to Christ, stop hesitating in your devotion. Don't be too hasty committing to Christ and don't think that He will understand your hesitance later. It is still the day of the Sermon on the Mount. If we look at Mark's Gospel, it may be still the Sabbath day. In the evening of the Sabbath day, and immediately following this mass, mass, mass exorcism that took place at Peter's home, and this healing event, Jesus looks around and he sees this crowd that, that, that has gathered around him. It's growing in, in, in its enormity. Now we reflect at the beginning of chapter Five, remember that he looked around at the crowd then and he went up on the mountain. So every time we're, we're noticing a pattern, every time a, a giant crowd begins to, to gather around Jesus, he does something to minimize the crowd, to sort of filter people out, as it were. The first time he went up on the mountain, and here he gives a command, probably to his disciples, to go to the other side of the lake. We're getting out of town. In our passage, we encounter two inquirers. And Matthew has recorded two different men who came to Jesus to ask him about discipleship. One was a scribe, and the other is a disciple. One called Jesus teacher, and the other referred to him as Lord. One was raring to go on the journey. And the other one is giving an excuse why he needs to hold back. Ready to halt. I want you to notice that Matthew chose not to record whether either one of these inquirers went on with Jesus. We're left to ask perhaps later if we encounter one of these men in heaven, what'd you do? Why didn't Matthew record their response? 
because he's bringing you into this narrative. And he's posing these statements to you. And he wants you to think about what Jesus said and leave it there. And he wants you to think about how you are responding in the here and now to Christ's assertion to these two men. Notice, first of all, with me in verses 19 to 20, that disciples of Jesus Christ must not be too hasty to commit. Now, this is, this is an interesting way to put it. We, some of you grew up like I did, where you have re- revivals, right? And you bring in a special speaker, and so Monday to Friday, you are driving it home that you better make a commitment to Jesus tonight because you don't know if, if you're going to have tomorrow. And that's all true. Or, or maybe you've been in uh, white tent revivals somewhere that, that used to be very popular. And you've got to make a commitment right now. Well, here we encounter an interesting change of message from Christ. It's almost as though he puts his hands up and says, hold on just a second. You need to think about what you're committing yourself to. Don't make a vain promise here. We see in verse 19 that eager commitment results in failure. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will go, I will follow you wherever you go. Literally, uh, literally it would say, if you go anywhere, I will go there with you. Now this is one of the scribes, and we know we've encountered these fellows before. A scribe is a man, he was a keeper of the scrolls. If you needed to know uh, when the next Jewish holy day was, you would go to a scribe and you would ask him, when is Purim? When is the Day of Atonement? What are we supposed to do on the Sabbath? These were the keepers of the scroll. Uh, They are men who are devoted to the law and to Jewish tradition. They were the masters of ceremony, as it were. Here he addressed Jesus as a teacher. He recognizes his authority as a teacher. And he is ready to sing to him the beautiful song. There ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough. Lord, wherever you go, I will go with you to that place. Notice what Jesus says to him in verse 20. The foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, what Jesus is doing there is he's saying, wait just a second. You need to consider what you're committing yourself to. Now, all, all he has seen so far is he's, he's perhaps seen Jesus. They're in Capernaum. Jesus is in, inside of the home. People are gathering around. He has seen this illustration of Christ's power. And he, if he can't be the man... He wants to be in the man's entourage, right? If he can't be uh, the guy that all the paparazzi come to and take photos of, he at least wants to be in his posse. And Jesus is saying to him, because he knows his heart, he's saying, I don't, I don't think you've thought this all the way through. You think, you think that if you follow me, My popularity is going to become your popularity, but you clearly don't understand the mission given to me. 
Here for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Now that's a significant term. I want you to turn back with me, if you will, to Daniel chapter 7. If you've read the, the prophets, the latter prophets, you know that Ezekiel especially used the term son of man over and over and over again. But the significant place where the term son of man occurs is in, Matthew, is in Daniel chapter 7. You see, Daniel has had this vision, and we've talked about this before. And Daniel has this vision where there are four consecutive kingdoms that rise up. And each, each sub- successive kingdom devours the others. And so we have this, uh, this picture of the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then we have a picture of the Roman kingdom that conquers the world. But then we have a final kingdom that comes. Let's begin reading in Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, Daniel is he's having a vision here. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now, who is the Ancient of Days? Well, that is the triune God. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning. You, you see in this allusions to later events, the, the transfiguration of Christ, uh, Christ in the book of Revelation. A stream of fire issued and came out from before Him. A thousand thousands served Him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, that's Christ. And as I looked, the beast was killed, that's the final one, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now, verse 13 is the one we're looking for. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now, if you read in some Jewish translations of this, it is one like a human being, which is not bad, because that's what it means. Notice what happens to this son of man. What does he do? And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So we have this picture of this human being, this man, this son of man, who rises up to the throne of God. Now, who can that be? Well, it is the incarnate Christ. And the picture that we have then of this son of man is that he is in the form of man, in the likeness of man, as we read in Philippians chapter 2, and yet, he can rise up And stand before Almighty God. Now you know if you've read Psalm 24 that nobody can do that unless you have a pure heart and clean hands. So who is He? A sinless, spotless man. And here as we go back to Matthew 8, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus takes this term and applies it to Himself. What is He saying?
You need to understand the mission of the Son of Man if you would follow him. And there's something of, we we see then the continuity, how the old covenant, the prophecies of the old covenant are carrying forward into the new. But Jesus is teaching something to us about a disconnection. Something won't be the same. And we've mentioned as we've watched Jesus, remember coming down from the mountain, and there all of these great multitudes of people are following him. And that's a picture of the tabernacle of God in the Old Covenant, walking, leading the people through the wilderness. That tabernacle in the Old Covenant was destined to stop in a place. God said to the people, I will put my name in a place. And that became Jerusalem. What Jesus is saying to this man, you're asking me about a where. You're telling me, if I go over to the river across the Sea of Galilee and I set up my my base for operations there, that you're going to go there. But Jesus is saying there is no there. There is no place. There is no stopping point. You see, now we've exchanged the where for a who. The promise of rest for the people of God is not that that tabernacle of God is going to lead us to the blessed Jerusalem. Now the tabernacle of God has ascended up to the right hand of the Father and He sits there and we go to Him Our rest is in a person. And so he's saying to the scribe, don't think that you're going to get notoriety and popularity, that you're going to get a place of rest here in this life. As long as you live this life, this mortal life, you will be a wanderer. A nomad. And this teaches us. Matthew is saying... Let this roll around on your tongue for just a minute. Think about it. What's he saying to you? He's saying to you that if you would come to him as a true disciple, that you ought not have a high expectation of comfort in this world. One commentator notes this, that In his wandering from place to place, he for whom there was no room in the inn has no place on which he can figure to spend the night. As the story develops, Judea rejects him, John 5.18. Galilee casts him out, John 6.66. Gadara begs him to leave its district, Matthew 8.34. Samaria refuses him lodging, Luke 9.53. Earth will not have him, Matthew 27.23. And finally, even heaven forsakes him, Matthew 27.46. Therefore, let the scribe figure the cost before he builds the tower. If you would come to Christ, understand what it is that he's calling you to. That following Christ, becoming a disciple of Christ is going to cost you. Part of that rest that we have in Him is that we quit striving to gain this world's riches in order to devote ourselves to Him, the true tabernacle of God, seated in heaven. 
It is with Him that our journey ends. You should understand, just as Christ intended the scribe, that when you come to Christ, your life will change. It will change. Your connection to the things of this world are going to diminish. They're, they're going to dim to you. Just as Job said, you will cast the gold of Ophir into the dust because you have Christ. Your ambition to get all you can out of this life is going to relax. Because you see yourself now as a pilgrim. Your cutthroat desire to please men is going to be replaced with a desire to please God. In short, like Christ, you will live for a kingdom that is yet to come. Your life will change. People will reject you. As we go back to the early church, we find that this is, this is true. They suffered under two great persecutions. And, and one, one man I encourage you to read is a, a fellow by the name of Tertullian. Now, he was one of the early apologists, one of the early defenders of the faith. And he's writing to the Roman emperors, and he's, the, the, the persecutors of the church. He's saying, what you're doing to Christians makes no sense. The things that you accuse us of believing, we don't believe. But I want to draw your attention to one thing that he said in his apology, he said this, the wife now chaste, the husband now no longer jealous, casts out of his house. You see what he's saying there? Here's a woman, her husband has patiently put up with all of her infidelity and running around, but as soon as she converts to Christ, oh, suddenly you put her out of your house. This is really happening. The son, now obedient, the father who used to be so patient, disinherits. The servant, now faithful, the master once so mild, commands away from his presence. It is a high offense for anyone to be reformed by the detested name. What name is that? Christian you call yourself a Christian in the Roman Empire, you're going to be persecuted until you say that I will deny Christ. And Jesus is saying to the scribe, this is what you should expect. If you want to follow me, you need to expect that you will be considered the off-scouring of the world. Don't come to me for popularity. Don't come to me for a welcome from the world. You won't receive it. Disciples of Christ must not be too hasty. Secondly, disciples of Christ must not hesitate. Verses 21 to 22. You see now why Matthew puts these things together. He's, he's using this, uh, this chastisement from Jesus to show you the error on either side of the spectrum. Not only did hasty commitment result in failure, but hesitant commitment also results in failure. And now, now, if you look at verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go, bury, go and bury my father. Now, so, so perhaps this is one of the disciples, maybe it's one of the inner circle. 
we, as we were going through Matthew chapter 4, Jesus called four men there, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Now these are probably the same men, the, the seaworthy man, who are going to take him in a boat to the other side of the sea to get rid of the crowd. So one of these inner circle, maybe it's James or John, remember that when Jesus called James and John, they left their nets and their father and his servants in the boat and they followed Jesus. This disciple refers to him as Lord. So he is, he's acknowledging who Christ is in his person. We think about Matthew 7, 21. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Well, here this disciple calls him Lord and he asks permission to leave. Lord, may I, as it were, may I go first bury my father. So I'm ready to go with you across the sea. I'm ready to join the scribe in singing his song of adulation and admiration and my commitment. But there are some household duties that I need to take care of first. He'd made a commitment to following Christ, but now, at the first appearance of sacrifice, do you see? At the first, at the first appearance of sacrifice, he's saying, let me go bury my father. Now, we don't know what's going on. Has his father died? We don't know. Is his father simply old and in the season when death will be close? We don't know. He wants to go home. He feels the pull of a worldly concern. What we do know is that this disciple, in quotes, is offering an excuse to Jesus as to why he must put a pause on his pursuit of discipleship. Well, Jesus is the demolisher of excuses. And so he responded with two simple commands. First, follow me. And second, leave the dead to bury their own dead. What is going on here? Well, Jesus is speaking to this disciple, this man. He's saying, this is the first test of true discipleship. Here it is. It's upon you. Here's a test. To whom are you devoted? Jesus has every right to require primary devotion in this man's life and in your life. He has every right to demand primary devotion in this man's life and in your life. He is the firstborn over all creation. To him have been given the authority, has been given authority over heaven and earth. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no greater power than him. And so we reflect that in our lives when we say, there's no greater priority for me than following Christ. Leave the dead to bury the dead. It is to say, where does your true commitment lie? It is to say, to this disciple, if your primary devotion isn't to me, then you are not my disciple. Now he referred to those who must bury the dead as the dead. And so this is likely a reference to those who live in spiritual death. And Jesus is saying, let those who are spiritually dead 
care about worldly things. Leave the earth to them. You are mine. Devote yourself to me. Does this mean that Christians shouldn't attend funerals? No. What it means is that Jesus will not be a runner-up. He will not play second fiddle. He will not be your third wheel. He will not be your co-pilot. When you come to Christ, you are not walking down an aisle or praying a sinner's prayer. You are making a commitment through faith to devote yourself to this man. To learning from him. So if there is a goal or an ambition in your life that requires you to pause your commitment to Christ, then let the dead pursue that goal. You leave it be. A true disciple will remain committed to Christ. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this verse, he says, an unwilling mind never wants an excuse. What does that mean? If you don't want to go, your mind is all too ready to come up with a reason that you won't go. I I can't pursue holiness in my life. I mean, I I want to be a little bit holy, but not that holy. I want to be a little bit committed, but not that committed. I I mean, that might require me to distance some relationships. I might not be able to take that job. And don't you know that that's the only way I'm going to get a promotion? I, don't, I want to be a little bit holy. I want to be a little bit of a follower. But you cannot come up with a higher priority than devoting yourself to Christ. There's a scene in uh, nearing the end of the book of 1 Kings. And Elisha, uh, Elijah has to find a successor, and it's going to be Elisha. So Elijah uh, transfers his mantle to Elisha. Now the story is that you see see Elijah walking along, and he's got his mantle, and and Elisha is over in the field, and he's got 12 yoke of oxen. Okay, this is a big team. He's doing a big job here, plowing. And so Elijah walks over to him, and he takes his mantle off, and he just puts it on his back, and he keeps walking. Well, Elisha ran after Elijah and he said, look, uh, let me go kiss my mom and dad and I'll get back to you. And Elijah essentially says, do what you want. And I think Elisha got the point because he went back and he took that 12 yoke of oxen and he slaughtered every one of them. And he took all the implements of his work, the plow, He cut it up into firewood, and he made a pyre, and he boiled the flesh of those oxen, and he distributed it. You know what you see what he's doing? He's not giving himself anything to come back to. Once he leaves to follow Elijah, that's it. I'm not giving myself a plan B. Those who commit to Christ must do so with whole soul devotion. You see, and so Jesus is saying to you this morning, don't don't pray the prayer, don't say the words without thinking about what this means. No, No king goes to war without counting the cost first. 40 billion or whatever it's going to be. 
count the cost. Whatever you perceive to lose, here's the promise. That whatever you perceive to lose by following Christ, remember that He restores it to you. How? In Himself. Don't be too hasty committing to Christ. And don't think that He will understand your excuses later. The Spirit of God indwells the true disciple of Christ. And whom the Spirit indwells, He also, he also imparts new loves, uh, new desires, new affections. He transforms our desire for the things of earth and enables us to set our hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. Some too quickly commit to following Christ without counting the cost. Others hold back. They delay too long, offering every possible excuse. If you would be His disciples, come to Him with your eyes open. Recognize what He's calling you to. It will cost you friends. It will cost you jobs. It will cost you dreams. It will cost you family. But if you would be His disciple, come to Him without reservation. A half-hearted disciple is not a disciple. As the Son of God and the Son of Man, there must be no greater love in your life than Christ. He is your true, eternal husband. Nothing less than total devotion is acceptable to Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, we think about these things, the hastiness of commitment, the hesitancy of commitment, and, and we recognize that both, both can be seen in our own lives. We are ready to be your people, but perhaps not quite that holy. We don't want to be perceived as too pious. So Father, we ask that you would forgive us in Christ, that you would renew in us a desire, a zeal for holiness and for following after Christ, that we would embrace His life as our life, and that we would find contentment in whatever it is that you call us to. We pray... In Jesus' name, amen.